Section 25 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott. From 1713 to 1755, Part 3. What happened has been told times without number in story and history. It was what the despised colonials feared and any bushranger could have predicted. July 9th, in stifling heat, the marchers had come to a loop in the Mongonahala River. Braddock thought to avoid the loop by fording twice. He was now within eight miles of Fort Duquesnesque, the modern Pittsburgh. Though Indian raiders had scalped some wanderers from the trail, and insolent messages had been occasionally found scrawled in French on birch trees, not a Frenchman had been seen on the march. The advance guard had crossed the second ford about midday when the road markers at a little opening beyond the river saw a white man clothed in buckskin but wearing an officer's badge dash out of the woods to the fore wave his hat and disappear a moment later the well-known war-whoop of the french bushrovers tore the air to tatters and bullets rained from ambush foes in a sheet of fire in vain the english drums rolled and rolled and soldiers shouted the king god save the king one officer tried to rally his men to rush the woods but they were shot down by a torrent of bullets from an unseen foe the virginian bushfighters alone knew how to meet such an emergency jumping from tree to tree for shelter like indians dancing sideways to avoid the enemy's aim they had broken from rank to fight in bushman fashion when braddock came galloping furiously from the rear and ordered them back in line what use was military rank with an invisible foe as well shoot air as an unseen indian again the virginians broke rank and the regulars huddled together like cattle in the shambles fired blindly and succeeded only in hitting their own provincial troops braddock stormed and swore and rode like a fury incarnate roaring orders which no one could hear much less obey five horses were shot under him and the dauntless commander had mounted a fresh one when the big guns came plunging forward but the artillery on which braddock had pinned his faith only ploughed pits in the forest mould of eighty officers sixty had fallen and like proportion of men braddock ordered a retreat the march became a panic the panic frenzied terror the men who had stood so solidly under withering fire now dashing in headlong flight from the second to the first ford and back over the trail breathless as if pursued by demons artillery cattle supplies dispatch boxes all were abandoned. Washington's clothes had been riddled by bullets, but he had escaped injury. 
Braddock reeled from his horse mortally wounded to be carried back on a litter to that scene of Washington's surrender the year before. Four days later the English general died there. Of the English troops, more than a thousand lay dead, blistering in the July sun, maimed and scalped by the Indians. Braddock was buried in his soldier's coat beside the trail, all signs of the grave effaced to prevent vandalism. Of all the losses, the most serious were the dispatch boxes, for they contained the English plans of campaign from Acadia to Niagara, and were carried back to Fort Duquesne, where they put the French on guard. The jubilant joy at the French fort need not be described. When he heard of the English advance, Contracure, the commander, had been cooped up with less than one thousand men, half of whom were Indians. Had Braddock once reached Fort Duquesne, he could have starved it into surrender without firing a gun, or shelled it into kindling wood with his heavy artillery. Bougeot, an officer under Contracure, had volunteered to go out and meet the English. My son, my son, will you walk into the arms of death? demanded the Indian chiefs. My fathers, will you allow me to go alone? answered Bougeot, and out he sallied with six hundred picked men. It was Bougeot whom Braddock's men had seen dash out and wave his hat. The brave Frenchman fell, shot at the first volley from the English, and his Indian friends avenged his death by roasting thirty English prisoners alive. The Isthmus of Chignato, or the boundary between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, was the scene of the borderland fights in Acadia. To narrate half the forays, raids, and ambuscades would require a volume. Fights as gallant as Dollard's at the Salt, waged from Beaujour, the French fort north of the boundary, to Grand Pre and Annapolis, where the English were stationed. After the founding of Halifax, the Abbey Le Lotre, whose false, foolish counsels had so often endangered the habitant farmer, moved his mission in the center of Acadia up to Beaujolais on the New Brunswick side. Here he could be seen with his Indians toiling like a demon over the trenches. When Moncton, the English general, came on June 1, 1855, with the British fleet to land his forces at Fort Lawrence, the English post on the south side. Colonel Lawrence was now English governor of Acadia, and he had decided with Moncton that once and for all the French of Acadia must be subjugated. The French of Beaujolais had in all less than 1,500 men, half of whom were simple Acadian farmers forced into unwilling service by the priest's threats of Indian raid in this world and damnation in the next. Day dawn of June 4th, the bugles blew to arms, and English forces, some 4,000, had marched to the south shore of the Missagash River, 
where the French on the north side uttered a whoop and emitted a clatter of shots. Black-hatted, sinister, tireless, the priest could be seen urging his Indians on. The English brought up three field cannon, and under protection of their scattering fire laid a pontoon bridge. Crossing the river, they marched within a mile of the fort. That night the sky was alight with flame, for Vergor, the French commander, and Abbot Le Lotre set fire to all houses outside the fort walls. In a few days the English cannon had been placed in a circle round the fort and set such strange music humming in the ears of the besieged that the Acadian farmers deserted and the priests nervously thought of flight. Louisburg could send no aid, and still the bombs kept bursting through the roofs of the fort houses. One morning a bomb crashed through the roof of the breakfast room, killing six officers on the spot, and the French at once hung out the white flag. But when the English troops marched in on June 16th, at seven in the evening, Le Lotre had fled overland through the force of New Brunswick for Quebec. Their scant welcome awaited the renegade priest. The French governors had been willing to use him as their tool at a price, $800 a year, but when the tool failed of its purpose, they cast him aside. Le Lotre sailed for France, but his ship was captured by an English cruiser and he was imprisoned for eight years on the island of Jersey. Meanwhile, how was fate dealing with the Acadian farmers? Ever since the Treaty of Utrecht, they had been afraid to take the oath of unqualified loyalty to England, lest New France, or rather Admiral Le Lotre, let loose the hounds of Indian massacre on the peaceful settlements. Besides, had not the priest assured them year in and year out that France would recover Acadia and put the sword those habitants who had forsworn France? And they had been equally afraid to side with the French, for in case of failure the burden of punishment would fall on them alone. For almost half a century they had been known as neutrals. Of their population of 12,000, 3,000 had been lured away to Prince Edward Island and Cape Breton. When Cornwallis had founded Halifax, he had intended to wait only till the English were firmly established, when he would demand an oath of unqualified allegiance from the Acadians. They, on their part, were willing to take the oath with one provisio that they should never be required to take up arms against the French, or they would have been willing to leave Acadia, as the Treaty of Utrecht had provided, in case they did not take the oath of allegiance. But in the early days of English possession, the English governors were not willing they should leave. If the Acadians had migrated, it would simply have strengthened the French in Cape Breton, and Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick. Obstructions had been created that prevented the supply of transports to move the Acadians. The years had drifted on, and a new generation had grown up, knowing nothing of treaty rights, 
but only that the french were threatening them on one side if they did not rise against england and the english on the other side if they did not take oath of unqualified allegiance cornwallis had long since left halifax and lawrence the english governor while loyal to a fault was like braddock that type of english understrapper who had wrought such irreparable injury to english prestige purely from lack of sympathetic insight with colonial conditions for years before he had become governor lawrence's days had been embittered by the intrigues of the french with the acadian farmers he had been in halifax when the abbey lotras indian brigands had raided and slain as many as thirty workmen at a time near the english fort he had been at the isthmus of chignetto that fatal morning when some indians dressed in the suits of french officers waved a white flag and lured captain howe of the english fort across stream where they shot him under flag of truce in cold blood these are not excuses for what lawrence did nothing can excuse the infamy of his policy towards the acadians there are few blacker crimes in the history of the world but these facts explain how a man of lawrence's standing could assume the responsibility he did in addition lawrence was a bigoted protestant he not only hated the acadians because they were french he hated them as a colony of rattlesnakes because they were catholics and being an englishman he despised them because they were colonials france and england were now on the verge of the great struggle for supremacy in america eighteen french frigates had come to louisbourg and three thousand french regulars to quebec if lawrence did not yet know that braddock had been defeated on july ninth at duquesque as his friends declare in his defence it is a strange thing for by august the bloody slaughter of the monagahala was known everywhere else in america from quebec to new spain with lawrence and monckton and murray and boscawan and the other english generals sent to conduct the campaign in acadia the question was what to do with the french habitants let two facts be distinctly stated here and with great emphasis first the colonial officers like winslow from massachusetts knew absolutely nothing of the english officers plans they were not admitted to the conferences of the english officers and were simply expected to obey orders second the english government knew absolutely nothing of the english officers course till it was too late for remedy in fact later dispatches of that year inquire sharply what lawrence meant by an obscure threat to drive the acadians out of the country did a darker or more sinister motive underlie the policy of lawrence and his friends poems novels histories have waged war of words over this only the facts can be stated land to the extent of twenty thousand acres each which had belonged to the acadians 
was ultimately deeded to Lawrence and his friends. Charges of corruption against Lawrence himself were lodged with the British government, both by mail and by personal delegates from Halifax. Unfortunately, Lawrence died in Halifax in 1760, before the investigation could take place, and whether true or false, the odium of the charges rests upon his fame. What he did with the Acadians is too well known to require telling. In secret conclave, the infamous edict was pronounced. Quick messengers were sent with secret dispatches to the officers of land forces and ships at Annapolis, at Mines, at Chignotto, to repair to the towns of the Acadians, where, upon opening their dispatches, they would find their orders, which were to be kept a secret among the officers. The colonial officers, on reading their orders, were simply astounded. It is the most grievous affair that ever I was in, in my life, declared Winslow. The edict was that every man, woman, and child of the Acadians should be forcibly deported, in Lawrence's words, in such a way as to prevent the reunion of the colonists. The men of the Acadian settlements were summoned to the churches to hear the will of the King of England. Once inside, doors were locked. English soldiers placed on guard with leveled bayonet, and the edict read by an officer standing on the pulpit stairs or on a table. The Acadians were snared like rats in a trap. Outside were their families, hostages for the peaceful conduct of the men. Inside were the brothers and husbands, hostages for the good conduct of the families outside. Only in a few places was there any rioting, and this was probably caused by the brutality of the officers. Murray and Monckton and Lawrence refer to their prisoners as popish recusants, poor wretches, rascals who have been bad subjects. While the Acadians were to be deported so they could never reunite as a colony, it was intended to keep the families together and allow them to take on board what money and household goods they possessed. But there were interminable delays for transports and supplies. From September to December the deportation dragged on, and when the Acadians, patient as sheep in the shambles, became restless, some of the ships were sent off with the men while the families were still on land. In places the men were allowed ashore to harvest their crops and care for their stock, but harvest and stock fell to the victors as burning hayracks and barns nightly lighted to flame the wooded background and placid seas of the fair Acadian land. Before winter set in, the Acadians had been scattered from New England to Louisiana. A few people in the Chignotto region had escaped to the woods of New Brunswick, and one shipload overpowered its officers and fled to St. John River, but in all 6,600 people were deported. It is the blackest crime that ever took place under the British flag, and the expulsion was only the beginning of the sufferers' woes. Some people found their way to Quebec, 
but quebec was destitute and in the throes of war the wanderers came to actual starvation the others wandered homeless in boston in new york in philadelphia in louisiana after the peace of seventeen sixty three some eight hundred gathered together in boston and began the long march overland through the forests of maine and new brunswick to return to acadia singing hymns dragging their baggage on sleighs pausing to hunt by the way these sad pilgrims toiled more than one thousand miles through forest and swamp and at the end of two years found themselves back in acadia but they were like ghosts of the dead revisiting scenes of childhood their lands were occupied by new owners of their herds not remain but the bleaching bone heaps where the lowing cattle had huddled in winter storms new faces filled their old houses strange children rambled beneath the little dormer windows of the acadian cottages and the voices of boys at play in the apple orchards shouted in an alien tongue the very names of the places had vanished beaujour was now cumberland Bobason had become amherst coquid was now truo grand pre was now known as horton the heartbroken people hurried on like ghosts to the unoccupied lands of st mary's bay st mary's bay where long ago priest aubrey had been lost here they settled to hew out for themselves a second home in the wilderness it will be recalled that braddock's plans had been captured by the french and those plans told baron dieskau who had come out to command the french troops that the english under william johnson a great leader of the iroquois injured to bush life like an indian were to attack the french fort at crown point on lake champlain now observe on the ohio braddock the regular had been defeated in acadia lawrence and monckton and murray the english generals had brought infamy across england's renown by their failure to understand colonial conditions at lake champlain the conditions are reversed johnson the english leader is from long residence in america almost a colonial dieskau the commander of the french is a veteran of saxon wars but knows nothing of bush fighting what happens dieskau had intended to attack the english at oswego but the plans for johnson on lake champlain bought the commander of the french rushing up the richaud river with three thousand soldiers part regulars part canadians crown point called fort frederick by the french was reached in august no english are here but scouts bring word that johnson has built a fort on the south end of lake george and leaving only five hundred men to garrison it is moving up the lake with his main troops fired by the french victories over braddock Dieksau planned to capture the English fort and ambush Johnson on the march. Look at the map. The south end of Lake Champlain lies parallel with the north end of Lake George. The French can advance on the English one of two ways. 
portage over to lake george and canoe up the lake to johnson's fort or ascend the marsh to the south of lake champagne then cross through the woods to johnson's fort de salle chose the latter trail leaving half his men to guard the baggage de salle bade fifteen hundred picked men follow him on swiftest march with provisions in haversack for only eight days september eighth ten a m the marchers advanced through the woods and johnson's fort when suddenly they learn that their scout has lied johnson himself is still at the fort instead of five hundred are four thousand english advancing along the trail v-shape regulars in the middle canadians and indians on each side the french come on a company of five hundred english wagoners in the wild melee of shouts the english retreat in a rabble pursue march fire force the place yells dixau dashing forward sword in hand thinking to follow so closely on the heels of the rabble that he can enter the english fort before the enemy know but his indians have forsaken him and johnson's scouts have forewarned the approach of the french instead of ambushing the english dixau finds his own army ambushed he had sneered at the uninformed ploughboys of the english the more there are the more we shall kill he had boasted but now he discovers that the rude bushwhackers who fought like boys in the morning at noon fought like men and by afternoon fought like devils their sharpshooters kept up a crash of fire to the fore and fifteen hundred doubled on the rear of his army folding us up he reported like a pack of cards dixau fell shot in the leg and in the knee and a bullet struck the cartridge box of the servant who was washing out the wounds lay my telescope and coat by me and go ordered dixau this is as good a deathbed as any place go he thundered seeing his second officer hesitate don't you see you are needed go and sound a retreat a third shot penetrated the wounded commander's bladder lying alone propped against a tree he heard the drums rolling a retreat when one of the enemy jumped from the woods with pointed pistol scoundrel roared the dauntless de sau dare to shoot a man weltering in his blood the fellow proved to be a frenchman who had long ago deserted to the english and he muttered out some excuse about shooting the devil before the devil shot him but when he found out who dixau was he had him carried carefully to johnson's tent where every courtesy was bestowed upon the wounded commander johnson himself lay wounded all that night iroquois kept breaking past the guard into the tent what do they want asked dixau feebly to skin you and eat you returned johnson laconically whose was the victory the losses had been about even two hundred and fifty on each side johnson had failed to advance to crown point but dixau had failed to dislodge johnson if dixau 
had not been captured it is a question if either side would have considered the fight a victory as it was new france was plunged in grief joy bells rang in new england johnson was given a baroncy and five thousand pounds for his victory he had named the lake south of lake champlain after the english king lake george so closed the first act in the tragic struggle for supremacy in america End of section 25. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.